Hi, I'm Johanna Ferreira, content director of Pop Sugar Juntos. Juntos is all about celebrating Latin A culture, pride, our many intersectional identities, and joy. Thanks to support from Prime, there's so much to get into over at Juntos this month. From conversations with the Latin A minds behind our favorite new movies and resurrected TV shows, to thoughtful celebrity commentary and exclusive interviews with some of the biggest Latin music artists today. And it doesn't stop there. Get more of the music, movies, and shopping you love on Prime. Whatever you're into, it's on Prime. Visit Amazon.com slash Prime to get more of whatever you're into from streaming to shopping. And get all of our latest coverage at PopSugar.com slash Juntos. Con amor, Johanna. Then when the woman with the gun and the badge and the power to arrest enters, it, it turns out that that intervention doesn't work. What I'd like us to imagine is a range of responses that kind of fit the problem. A health provider, a counselor, an elder. Hello and welcome to the Ezra Klein Show on the Vox Media Podcast Network. In 2017, Paul Butler published the book Chokehold. Uh, A chokehold, as he defines it, is, quote, a process of coercing submission that is self-reinforcing. A chokehold justifies additional pressure on the body because the body does not come into compliance. But the body cannot come into compliance because of the vice grip that is on it. And that, he says, is a black experience in the United States. Butler is a professor at Georgetown Law. He's a former federal prosecutor who left after seeing the system from an unusual vantage point, that of someone falsely accused of a crime. He writes in his book that, quote, after that experience, I didn't want to be a prosecutor anymore. I don't think every cop lies in court, but I know for sure that one did. This set Butler on a journey that ended in a very different place than he began. He's become an advocate of not just reforming, but fully rethinking our criminal justice system, beginning with prison abolition. He writes, think of prison abolition as the third gift people who fight for African-American freedom will have provided to the country after they defeated slavery and the old Jim Crow. This is a conversation about why you should think about it that way, about why something that may initially seem too big, crazy utopian, as we talk about, Maybe we need to think very differently if we're going to end the chokehold. Maybe to have a future that is different than the hundreds of years of American past, we need to imagine that the problems of the status quo, we need to feel the status quo and its failures more deeply than we fear a different future. As always, my email is EzraKleinShow at Vox.com. Here is Paul Butler. Paul Butler, welcome to the podcast. Hey, Ezra, it's great to be here. I wanted to begin with your central metaphor in the book. What What is a chokehold? A chokehold is a pain compliance technique. It's what police use when they want to force you to do something. The problem is you cannot do it because you cannot breathe. And when I thought about the experience of African-American men in the United States, and especially in the criminal legal process, it seemed like a really apt metaphor. Yeah, I... A lot of books that are built around a central metaphor don't work for me, and and I think you, I think this is a real exception. Like before we get into the real things, I'm going to tell a very quick story that just kept coming to me through the book. One of the scariest things that ever happened to me is I was a wrestler in high school, and I got thrown, um, and the guy landed on my neck, and he landed on my neck in a way where I couldn't even breathe enough to say that I was choking, right? It wasn't like, you know, like choking you see in a cartoon or something. But the way he landed on me, I couldn't get myself pinned. Like just the way, like everywhere I struggled, I seemed to be getting out of the, like I just needed the thing to end. And I still dream about it. Like I like it's like one of the only times in my life I thought I might die. Um, And I started trying to like poke his eyes or tap out. And it was just, it was very, very scary. And I don't say that to compare myself to anything in the book. I only say it to say that, the idea, I think this is something that people don't recognize about chokeholds like this, that in some ways, the more you comply, the more dangerous they can get if they're not well done, because they are built to make movement a problem, but it makes you panic and you begin moving. Exactly right. And so uh, I use it as a metaphor, but of course, chokehold is a literal 
thing too. It's what police do, again, when they're trying to force someone. And the problem is it's dangerous. It's risky. It cuts off oxygen and blood. And so most police departments now forbid their officers to use chokeholds. Interestingly, the Minneapolis Police Department doesn't. But what it says is that neck restraints are an appropriate tool. Again, that's that pain compliance idea. Chokeholds are considered deadly force. So in Minneapolis, an officer can only use a chokehold in a situation in which she might otherwise use a, a gun. And so technically, and you can, and please tell me if I'm wrong about this, but the hold they put on George Floyd would not technically be called a chokehold, even though it choked him to death. This may actually be an issue in the case. And I'll tell you, Ezra, I've only been able to look at that video once. And I've done so much commentary on it. I'm a legal analyst on MSNBC, so I've spoken about it a lot, but it's traumatic for me, as it is for a lot of people, to watch. And so I think if you look closely, it probably is a neck restraint rather than a chokehold, but the image is so horrifying. What I remember from that video is more kind of what people were saying uh, I, I didn't even want to look at it the one time I, 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 you know, I observed it, you know, from beginning to end. So probably a neck restraint as opposed to a, a formal official chokehold. But this, I think, actually gets to, to, I think, the power of the metaphor here. I've been thinking a lot since I read your book, um, and I really encourage people to read it. I think it really clarifies the world we're in about how the dynamic of police brutality followed by social unrest and then that social unrest being used to justify more oppressive policing, like is itself a kind of societal chokehold that the police by being completely in this case out of control, they create disorder and then they are deployed to put down disorder. They're given more power, more force, curfews, SWAT teams, riot gear, to put it down, and then the people who are enraged and protesting, they are recast as the people creating the disorder. And that it's just a cycle of, I don't exactly know what to call it, but 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 that's a kind of cycle you're you're writing about, the ways in which the state in many cases here and in many dimensions creates a situation that creates a reaction and then uses a reaction as an opportunity to apply more force, and the force becomes more deadly the more it's struggled against. That's right. So you say it's a cycle. You don't know what to call it. How about Choco? That was <laughs> that was kind of the idea. I mean, you explained it perfectly, but it's this kind of self-fulfilling, self-reinforcing nightmare. Your moving story about what happened to you when you got thrown, it actually reminded me of a kind of common metaphor, or I'm sorry, it reminded me of a common nightmare that people have when they're drowning. I do think there's something, you know, particularly viceral about not being able to breathe that's that's frightening and that's crazy to think of as a police technique. Give me some examples of chokeholds in policing in society uh, at the at the metaphor level. Like what 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 are some of the examples that led you to write the book? So, I was thinking a lot about African-American men, and certainly we're not the only subjects of the criminal legal process, but the idea in Choco is when you look at how bad things are now, and by the way, the reason I use the expression criminal legal process rather than criminal justice system, well, I think as soon as I say that, you know what I'm going to say, nothing just about the system, but I, I wanted to think about Black men in the criminal legal process because we are the subjects of it. And so when you look at the widespread critiques that many people have of the system now, people of various ideologies and political backgrounds, they complain about mass incarceration, 
about violent policing, about overcrowded prisons. How did we get here? Uh, the idea is that black men trying to control us, anxiety and fear of black men. And that's how we ended up here. Again, doesn't mean that we're the only subjects. Lots of other people experience the kind of oppression uh, from the system that black men do. But I think the idea that we need to be controlled is the best explanation. So in terms of, you know, kind of variations on the theme, racial profiling is a classic example. So the police selectively look for drugs with black folks. And there are some crimes that I talk about in the book that black men do disproportionately commit. Drug using, drug selling isn't one of those crimes. Everything that we know tells us that black folks don't use drugs or sell drugs more than anybody else. National Institute of Health says that about 13% of people who use drugs report using drugs on a monthly basis are black, which is our percentage of the population. If in DC, you take the red line from Bethesda, where the National Institute of Health is, to Judiciary Square, where the Justice Department is, and you go to the Bureau of Justice Statistics, and you ask, well, who's locked up for using drugs? About 50%, above 50% are African-American. 13% of people who do the crime, 50% of people who do the time. And, you know, some people will say, well, what about selling? Drug transactions are like most transactions in the United States. They're socially segregated. So most people who purchase drugs report that they bought them from someone of their own race. So we have this selective enforcement. And then police say, well, the reason why we look more at Black people when we're enforcing drug laws is because we're more likely to find drugs on Blacks. Well, you know, there's an important relationship between looking for things and finding things. And I always said if the police were to laser focus on my wonderful colleagues at Georgetown University, my wonderful faculty members, uh, then there'd be mass incarceration of Georgetown faculty members. And so, again, there's this dynamic of doing the oppressive thing and then using the oppressive thing to justify doing it more. So there's racial profiling, selective enforcement of drug laws with Blacks. The result is that more Blacks are locked up for drug crimes. And that just that in turn justifies the looking. You, you write in the book that, and I'm quoting you here, if the police patrolled white communities with the same violence that they patrol poor Black neighborhoods, there'd be a revolution. And, and I was thinking about that and, and thinking that there sort of was, that the American Revolution was sparked much more, I think, than we tell in a lot of our stories today by brutal law enforcement on the part of the British. Like it, it, it led to riots, to massacres, to and then ultimately to, to, to revolution. And we glorify that, right? We glorify, I mean, we celebrate it on July 4th by lighting off explosives. <laughs> we glorify that faced with the oppression of a um, state that had become overbearing, that Americans rose up, and in this case, rose up violently. And yet, at the same time, when we see it in our own country, um, and I would say uh, built from much deeper sins than the British um, inflicted upon America, we see it often as disorder, right? As, as you know, why can't people just be nonviolent about it? And, and I'm, I'm Curious if you have reflections on that, or, or, or what are the lessons in the different ways we we treat and do or don't justify those reactions? You know, that's a really interesting question. As you were speaking, I thought about years ago when I wrote about jury nullification, and my idea there was that African-American jurors, when they sit in judgment of a Black defendant for a nonviolent crime, especially a drug crime, should find that he's not guilty 
even if they think that he technically did it. And I, I learned that idea from jurors in the District of Columbia when I was a prosecutor. It was a commonplace back then in the 90s that if you had a young black guy as your defendant and it was a nonviolent drug case, D.C. jurors were going to find him not guilty. And they would say he was not guilty because they didn't want to send another young black man to prison. And this was back in the 90s. And it happened to me all the time when I was trying cases. And so when I became a law professor, it's one of the first things I wanted to study. And I found that the idea, it's called jury nullification. It's legal. It's a power that jurors have. And it's glory days were just from the time that you're talking about, Ezra, uh, during the American Revolution and before. So sometimes people would be locked up for sedition, (laughs) for advocating rebellion against the crown, these American subjects. And sometimes they'd be arrested for that. And there's a famous example of nullification in that case. And You know, people push back a lot, especially white folks, push back a lot against my proposal for nullification. But it's just what you're saying. Uh, For people who know American history, a lot of them love the idea that American, then not technically American, but I guess British subjects, they were the first kind of influential nullifiers. So, yeah, you know, the picture looks different when you're inside the frame. So I guess if you feel like nullification is going to hurt you or at least not benefit you, uh, then you might not like it. If, on the other hand, you see it as a a way of resistance, uh, then you might be more in favor of it. And I think, you know, there's lots of uh, of, uh, kind of analogies or 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 an interesting relationships between then and now. I mean, of course, this is, you know, one of the things that makes that musical Hamilton uh, so amazing because they kind of play with that idea of black and brown people and especially black and brown men being revolutionaries, being freedom fighters. You, you make a key argument in the book that I want to spend a little bit of time in where you argue that the way people normally think about this is that um, and certainly the way the state normally thinks about it or portrays its own role in it is that black communities are violent, which is why you have a heavy police presence because you're responding to that violence and trying to protect people. And, and, and you make the argument that no, it's actually much more cyclical than that, that it is the treatment the government inflicts upon black communities that has made them and continues to make them unusually violent and that the cycle has to be broken at its root. It, it, it's not that there is like this choice that people sometimes try to make you make between do you focus on police on black crime or intra-black crime, but that they're actually coming from the same thing. There's part of the same as, as you put it, chokehold. I want to see if you could talk through that a little bit. Like how, how does... How does the level of policing create disorder or the approach to policing in this way create disorder rather than order? First, let's think about what makes people at risk for for harm and a specific kind of harm, a violent crime. And let's think about two kinds of risk, a risk of being a victim and a risk of being a perpetrator. And it's just like this debate about policing now It's not that we don't know, it's just that we don't do. And so we know what makes people at risk for violence in the United States is living in a high poverty neighborhood, a high poverty neighborhood. And seven out of eight people who live in high poverty neighborhoods in the United States are African-American or Latinx. It doesn't mean that there are not a lot of poor white people. Of course there are. But poor white people tend to live more proximate to middle-income white people and all the goodies that come with living in or near a middle-income neighborhood, better schools, better health care, better food. And so 
if we could bust high poverty neighborhoods, uh, we go a long way in terms of making people safer. And then if we take it a little bit further and say, well, what about specific violence, gun violence, homicide, and getting shot, high poverty neighborhood, plus easy access to guns. Uh, that's the combustible mixture uh, that explains Chicago and Baltimore and Oakland and St. Louis and so forth. And it, it, I don't know if it sounds, I don't, I don't know if it sounds simple or if it sounds utopian to say that uh, the way to reduce the violent crime rate is to get rid of the hood. Uh, what, what do you think, Ezra? Is that simple or is that utopian? I think utopian things are almost always simple, <laughs> right? I think that's the secret of all utopian argument, that you take something that is obvious. Everybody should have health care. Everybody should have a decent standard of living. We shouldn't torture and kill animals for food for no reason, like in my case, say. Um, like things that are almost childlike intuitions, then you say, what if we built a society around them? People say, well, I mean, we couldn't possibly do that because something, something, something. You're like, well, couldn't we? <laughs> like with our resources and our wealth. And so, and so I think utopian things are always simple. I think the world complicates its way out of simple solutions. And the world can be complicated, and there are sometimes reasons they don't work. But there are sometimes reasons they would. I mean, we're going to go to this because a lot of the reason I wanted to have you on is that you offer – a solution here that seems to me to be um, the, uh, to attend to the scale of the problem, but but before we get to questions of prison abolition or or in this case or or as people are talking about now defunding police, like I, I want to hold on, uh, on on this question for another minute because let me say I'm glad you're doing that because what we're establishing now is that I'm a, a sane, reasonable person. And <laughs> so when we talk about abolition, remember it's that same reasonable guy. I would submit to anybody listening to this who doesn't, for some reason, like the word abolition. Um, I love the way you put it in the book that it could be a third gift. Um, but who doesn't like the word abolition? That um, maybe what we are dealing with right now is insane. Like maybe it is easy to look at the world we live in and decide it is sane. And then you realize we lock up more people per capita than Russia or China. And maybe it's not sane. Like maybe what we are in here is not sane. Um, and there's a reason some of our cities are on fire. But there's been an argument for a long time that a lot of African-American communities are simultaneously under-policed and over-policed, that there is a, like a kind of oppressive and fearful like stop-and-frisk regime that destroys a relationship of the community with the police. And that means when people need the police, they're not called. Or sometimes because of the way they're resourced, they don't solve the murder, they don't give the right attention to things. I'm curious how you think about that argument. I've thought about it a lot, mainly because I was a prosecutor for a while. I was a black prosecutor for a while. And I was detailed to the D.C. local prosecutor's office. And there, my job was to, to put black men in prison. Like a lot of prosecutors, that was pretty much all I did. And so uh, I've pondered, like, what was I doing and how was it helping the community? And when you look at like different versions of what people think the problem is, again, everybody now understands there's a problem with the criminal legal process, but people have different arguments about what that problem is. So here's what a lot of my prosecutor and police officer friends say is the problem. The problem is under enforcement of law in the black community. My cop friends who are black say, yeah, of course I enforce criminal law more in Southeast, in Harlem, in the hood. And the reason I do that is because those are my people. And back in the day, they used to say 911 is a joke. Well, guess what? 911 ain't no joke no more. And here the kind of formal academic version of that is that law enforcement is a public good. It's like a library or a school. So why would anyone complain about having too much of it? And it's certainly right that back in the day, 
the police didn't care about crime in the African-American community. And so a lot of black prosecutors and police officers justify their work almost as a form of reparations. It's making up for that time back in the day when 911 really was a joke. The problem with that way of thinking is the cliche. If the only tool you have is a hammer, every problem was like a nail. If the only tool you have is arrest, stop, detain, frisk, then every problem looks like a crime. Every person who has a problem looks like a, a criminal or a potential criminal. And this is my buddy James Foreman's book, not my book, Choco, but the idea is so important that when Black folks say that they need law and order, they need to be safe. That's what they mean. And they always, we always understand that that's a whole range of stuff. Uh, part of it may be police. Part of it may be prison. But everyone also understands that it also includes decent grocery stores. It includes good schools. It includes job opportunities. It includes health care. And this isn't breaking news. It wasn't breaking news in the 60s and the 70s and the 80s. And that wish list, those asks are presented as a group to lawmakers. What Black people get back is the police and the prosecutors and not the other stuff. You have a line in the book where you write that the problem is not bad apple cops. The problem is police work itself. American cops are the enforcers of a criminal justice regime that targets black men and sets them up to fail. And I'd like to hear you talk a bit about what would it look like for police work to not be the problem? Like, let's imagine it in a utopian way. If the problem is the system, the regime, what what would be the defining, let's call let's start here, what would be the values of a regime that was part of the solution? People feeling whole, people feeling safe, uh, people feeling taken care of. So President Obama's Commission on Policing recommended this whole range of reforms to make the police do better, act better, keep people safer. What I think the central insight of Obama's commission was that the culture of police now is about warriors. And the better metaphor is guardians. And, you know, these are our weeks when if anyone had any doubt that police think of themselves as warriors, uh, the, the last week has dispelled that doubt in any sane person. And if you think about what your resume is going to look like if you want to be a warrior, it's a one set of experiences, personality traits. If, on the other hand, you're applying for a job as a guardian, you're going to emphasize different things. You're going to have a kind of different bent. Uh, how much better it would be if police officers thought of themselves as guardians. And here I think about, you know, what is it that people want when they dial 911? And a lot of times what their needs are having someone with a gun and the power to arrest show up is going to make things worse, not better. A lot of times when people have relationship crisis, mental health crisis, when they feel threatened by folks in their own family, the only thing they know to do, and often the only option they have if they need to be safe for that moment, is to call the police. But then when the woman with the gun and the badge and the power to arrest enters, 
it, it turns out that that intervention doesn't work. And so what I'd like us to imagine is a range of responses that kind of fit the problem. A health provider, a counselor, an elder. And these are kind of first impression problems. And the good news is that right now, communities are kind of working this out. Individual groups are kind of working it out because there are a bunch of different groups of people in our community who, who, who need interventions to be safe, but know that they're not going to get the response from the police. So we can think about sex workers. We can think about uh, undocumented people, especially undocumented people who are the victim of domestic violence. We can think about transgendered women of color. Uh, all of those folks need to feel safe, and sometimes they're not safe. So they need an intervention, but often they know, based on their own experience, uh, that calling the police is going to make things worse, not better. And, and so there's an ongoing project with all those groups to think about, you know, what's the best way to help? Uh, who's the best guardian in that context? So in communities of color, often uh, the idea is elders and other people who have a lot of respect and who have experience with things like negotiating, taking care of people, managing relationships, who have a kind of wisdom. And, and I'm so glad you made that point earlier, Ezra, about how what's utopian is also what's simple, because I feel better about saying this stuff now. Because earlier someone might have said, oh, uh, Professor Butler says we don't need the police, we need grandma to show up. And grandma might actually work better than the police in a lot of contexts. Yeah, I mean, it's funny that I'm starting to feel like the radical one in the conversation. Um, Sometimes when I think about that task force, it still strikes me as being a little bit too much in the current frame of police thinking. That, I mean, even if you're thinking about yourself as a guardian, that always means you're protecting someone from someone. Someone is always the enemy, right? A a guardian is a a conflict. And sometimes you need that, right? Uh, I I spoke to this um, police officer, um, Patrick Skinner, who is in Savannah, Georgia, he talks about having a neighbor mindset. And he talks about how, um, he said, like, no 911 call I get is ever 100% correct, Mm -hmm. right? So if I walk into there thinking I have certainty about what is happening, Mm -hmm. I'm always going to be wrong. Mm -hmm. But yet, like, please, like, drive up, you know, pull out the badge, pull out the gun. And, you know, I think there's... You could imagine for a lot of calls, he has this nice point where he says, like, it's very easy to know what to do if somebody's shooting. Like, then I have to take cover. And But most of the time, you're trying to figure out a complicated situation. It's not clear who's right. It's not even clear what really happened. Um, and guardian is different than peacemaker, mm-hmm. right? Guardian is even, I think, in a way different than elder, right? When I think of, like, my elders, oftentimes what they had to do was wade in between me and my sister. Right. And th- there's no guardian work being done there. There was de-escalation work being done there. Right. And we've really locked ourselves into a view that, Policemen are the vir- the police. I'm sorry, are the virtuous bringers of protective violence, and sometimes you need that. But given the amount of money we spend, like for that to be the main reason people become police, you know, then you see it in all these other ways. You know, we're like they're getting military weapons, and they're and like there's a real issue with that. It seems to me you you need a pretty uh, a, a quite. I think you need a quite dramatic change in the way we see all this, um, which I think brings us to some of the things that, that, that you talk about that people maybe have heard of but, but sound more radical to them. Let's start with the idea of prison abolition. Um, you have a nice line where you say, U.S. prisons are built for black men and black men will be free literally and figuratively only when prisons are no more. Why? That, why what, what are we going to do if we don't have prisons? What is it that we think prison does now? I think if you ask most folks who don't have a lot of experience with it, they'd say, well, prison keeps us safe from people who would hurt us if they weren't locked up. And 
prison makes people who've caused harm accountable for what they've done. And those of us who worked in the system, been in the system, have loved ones in the system, you know that prison doesn't do either one of those very well, if at all. And so the question with abolition is, uh, can we use our American ingenuity or world ingenuity to come up with effective ways to keep people safe and to make folks who've caused harm responsible for what they've done that doesn't involve locking human beings in cages? So I think there are, there are two versions of this argument that people think about. One is the completest version and the, the other is a partial. And I'd like to separate them here and hear sort of which one you think about, which is there's one version of this wherein a lot of people in prison are there for nonviolent offenses or they're much older or whatever it is, they are not a threat to public safety. I think the Brennan Center has estimated you could release 40% of the people in prison with no question about public safety whatsoever. Right. So in some ways, like that's easy, right? And like let's uh, let's call that one prison downsizing. Yeah. And then there's a question of prisons also hold murders. They hold um, people who have committed sexual violence against children. They hold people who have stabbed somebody because they were trying to take the money out of their wallet. If you get rid of prisons, uh, what happens to those people? Uh, first, again, let's just start off on the simplest level. Uh, if that's actually what prison does and the idea is, okay, well, there are people who are really violent and destructive and harmful. Well, obviously, they're not by themselves, right? So even if it's true that they're likely to harm others, putting them in a cage doesn't mean that they can't harm others because there are a whole bunch of other people in the cage. But then we have to think about, well, what about the premise? of your question, which is that murderers and rapists are likely to do that if they're not caged. And the reason why there's not more murder and rape is because the bad guys are behind bars right now. So we know none of that is true. So with regard to murderers, the average prison term for a murderer is about 12, 13 years, someone who's convicted of uh, third degree, second degree, or first degree murder. Now, when I talk about this issue and I spit out that data point, people are often shocked. Just 11 years? Well, number one, 11 years is a long time to be in prison. But it certainly means that if we look at people who have intentionally killed other people, there are way more people walking around in the streets or sheltering in place right now who, who've done that, who caused that harm, than who are locked up. So 95% of people who get locked up eventually come home. If we think about people who have not formally been labeled murderers because they haven't been convicted, and compare that with convicted murders, it turns out that there are probably more people in the former category. So clearance rate, real quick. Clearance rate is a technical legal term for when the police solve a case. It doesn't mean that someone's convicted. It just means that the police caught the bad guy. The clearance rate for a homicide is about 60%, which means that 40% of people literally get away with murder and manslaughter. And Check this out. Homicide has the highest clearance rate of any crime. So people get that if you call the cops and say somebody stole your iPhone, the police are not going to find your iPhone. They're not going to even look at it. Look for it. It turns out that that's true for most crimes. And so all that's to say, if the idea is we need prison because that's where all the bad guys are, are, uh, that's wrong. There's way more bad guys and gals living among us now. And then we can also think about, well, what about someone who's a convicted felon? Uh, if 
they aren't caged, aren't they going to just keep doing that? People don't like hearing this, but murder has one of the lowest recidivist rates of any crime. Now, again, I wanted to establish early on I'm this reasonable, sane person. Uh, I'm not saying that people should kill with impunity. I'm not saying that there should, should not be consequences when they do. What I am saying is, if you look at the data, that's not the case. Uh, the vast majority of people who commit crime never see the inside of a cell. Indeed, the vast majority of people who commit most crimes are totally undisturbed by the criminal legal process. And if you ask victims, when we're thinking about violent offenses, uh, why they don't report, most people who are subject to violence don't dial 911. But what they say is it's because either they don't think that it's going to be taken seriously or they think the way that it will be taken seriously with the cages isn't going to help them. And so what I say is if we are actually focused on safety and wholeness as opposed to crime, we'd all be better off because the cages just aren't working. So you could go on the humanitarian tip, right, and say, well, the reason we need abolition is because prison is cruel. It's inhumane. And you'd be right. At the end of the day, I know I don't sound like, sound like it, but I'm still a prosecutor at heart. I'm a prosecutor in the sense that safety is really, really important to me. And as strange as it seems, that value is one of the things that makes abolition so important. But but then I want to press on the safety question, because I think the, the argument you just made to me is persuasive to me in the sense that I think it says prison abolition, prisons do not work that well to keep you safe. Um, it doesn't really tell me what prison abolition might work to do, though. And so, so let me ask that, 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 that question from that direction now, which is to say, we tend to have this whole conversation from inside the perspective of a crime, right? We talk mm-hmm. about like, there's somebody, they murdered somebody else, what should happen to that person? The chokehold metaphor is a societal perspective. It is a description of a relationship that America has with black communities. What are you trying to achieve in prison abolition from that perspective? What do you like, would it make people safer? Would it be more just? What is the what is the gain of it as opposed to simply the prevention of the loss of it? So the gain of it is more effective ways for us to be safe and whole. So Ezra, I know you're you're kind of a wonk, and that's a compliment for me. So we can get wonky for a second and think about a project, a program in Brooklyn called Common Justice. Common Justice is a, a neighborhood restorative justice organization that has a deal with the Brooklyn DA. The deal is, in cases of violent crime, certain cases, if the victim agrees, then the case leaves the prosecutor's office and it goes to this neighborhood organization, Common Justice. And what happens there is that the dude and 90% of people who commit violent offenses are men. The guy has to make it up to the victim in a way that she feels, she's never going to feel whole, but in a way that she feels restored in some sense, in a way that she feels better, in a way that makes her more optimistic about the future, her future, his future, the community's future. It only leaves the prosecutor's office if the victim agrees. People in Brooklyn who are victims or survivors agree all the time, in part based on their victimhood, because they know that if the guy gets locked up, He's going to be right back, and no one's going to be better off. And so what what would work better? What this program finds works better is this idea of restorative justice. So the person has to figure out what it is that made him do this, uh, what it's going to take for him not to do it again, and 
how he can make the victim feel compensated in some way for what he did to her. And he's got a team to help him. So if one of the things he needs is a job, healthcare, counseling, it's there for him. It's tough. It's work that you've got to do inside as well as outside in your mind, as well as, again, sitting down with this person who you hurt uh, in a group with others and having a hard conversation. I think the hardest conversations those guys have are with themselves because sometimes this could take a, a year, year and a half. Sometimes when they're in the middle of this, they say, man, I wish I'd gone to jail because this is too hard. Well, movement now for reform of the criminal legal processes is smart on crime rather than tough on crime, smart on crime. And so it's data-driven, it's evidence-based. And if you look at uh, what happens to people who come out of this restorative justice program and compare them with people who've gotten locked up, much lower recidivist rate, uh, much less likely to re-offend if you've had the benefit of restorative justice as opposed to the cages. I want to note, so that organization that you mentioned um, is run by Danielle Sered, I think it is. And her book, um, if people want to learn more about restorative justice, her book, Until We Reckon, Violence, Mass Incarceration, and a Road to Repair is just extraordinary. I've been reading, I had read it a little while ago because I want to have her on the podcast at some point, but it'll change you. Um, Something embedded in that. Uh, So before we talked, I taped an episode with Tanasi Coates and something we were talking about in that is this idea of whenever there are protests like the ones we're seeing now, people begin pulling out uh, nonviolence as a kind of cudgel. Why aren't all of you being nonviolent in the way the civil rights movement was? And putting aside the the reality that not all the civil rights movement was nonviolent, I mean, we were discussing was this idea of, well, why isn't the state, if, if nonviolence is such a great ideal and value, then why doesn't the state practice it? And, and the core of nonviolence, like when you read King or you read Gandhi or, you know, King says, well, we'll forgive them 70 times, seven times. You're trying to change people. And you don't change people by punishing them, by treating them as garbage. You change them by forgiving them, by giving them a relationship to live up to and to be changed by. One of the things I've always found really appealing about prison abolition and and, and more radical ideas of police reform is that they're built on a very similar value foundation, that what you're trying to do is change people. We often talk about rehabilitation, but in some ways I actually prefer the idea of change. And you can't change people by doing unto them what they did unto others. That's not transformative. That's reinforcing. That you need to build a system um, that actually has the possibility of, of, of making people different when they come into contact with it. And it just strikes me as a real inversion of the conversation we should be having. The ways in which people who are representing a government that is started this through violence and reacts to it through violence, telling everybody else to be nonviolent. If the value underneath that is so profound and worth honoring, then it seems to me that the state is the first place that should be trying to live up to it and leading by example. Amen. You're preaching today, Brother Ezra. So when you were preaching, what I was thinking of was how prison got started. And that's another reason why abolition, in the end, it's not going to be all that radical. So a lot of people know that prison actually started as a liberal reform. So it was invented in in Philadelphia in the early 1800s. And it was seen as a liberal liberal reform because Before prison, the way that people were punished was by killing them or harming their bodies or humiliating them, and in some cases, fining them. And the idea with the penitentiary, first one is the Eastern State Prison. It's in Philly. Now it's a museum devoted to mass incarceration. Everybody should check it out. It's amazing. But the idea was that you would put offenders in these individual cages, 
solitary confinement, and they would be penitent. Uh, they would be thoughtful. There was enforced silence. And so just what you were saying, the idea was that that would change them, that they would leave better than when they came. So again, now, because we know how it actually worked out, it's hard to think of it as something that's kind of progressive and liberal, but that was the idea at the time. And it was so interesting because it was this new wild American thing. So people came from all over to see Eastern State and then other prisons that popped up. Charles Dickens came from England to check it out. And when he saw these folks in cages, not allowed to talk to anybody, silent, disciplined, he said, this is worse than what it was before. He said, this is going to drive people crazy and it's not going to work. So he's actually one of the first abolitionists. But I say all that to say that you're right. There is this idea that if we don't think of treating folks by returning violence, you did something bad, now something bad's going to happen to you. Uh, that's a more constructive, more humane way of of thinking about our, our fellow humans. And now we know that the experiment with prison, it didn't work. In fact, it's a miserable failure. But the idea of, okay, well, what's the next thing? We, we went from the, from, from the, the gallows and, and the humiliation to the cages so where will we go next? And I think abolition is where we go next. Support for the gray area comes from Shopify. Imagine an action movie where the hero has to sell 1,000 Barbra Streisand t-shirts in 72 hours to save a major American city. Save the city from what exactly? That's for audiences to decide. But how would they do it? They'd use Shopify. Shopify is the global commerce platform flexible enough to help your business sell at every stage of growth, whether you're the main character in a tentpole action movie or the real-life CEO of a multinational company. No matter what you're making, Shopify can help you sell it. From their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person point-of-sale system, Shopify offers the flexibility to support your operation. They also offer something called Shopify Magic, an AI-powered helper created to help you stress less and sell more. Try it for yourself. You can sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash box. You can go to shopify.com slash box now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash box. People are hearing often now the, the, the term defund the police. Can you talk a bit about what that means and what you think of it as a policy idea? One of my friends was saying yesterday, you know, one, one concern that he has about this moment is there don't seem to be leaders in the movement. So there's a sense that the movement for Black lives is what animates a lot of the protest. But if you think about who the leaders are, they're not identifiable. And that's by design, I think by a kind of brilliant design. So one concern is that when there are leaders of civil rights movements, they almost always turn out to be men, heterosexual, if it's a racial justice, black movement, a black straight guy. And when that person is eliminated, he gets assassinated or discredited, then the movement dies. And so the organizers of the movement for Black Lives have been very savvy at not having, you know, one or two people who are kind of who MSNBC goes to for the quote for the movement. What they say is that they're leader full, not leader less. But, you know, like with the Occupy Wall Street movement, one of the consequences of that is, you know, there's not as much of a kind of 
set of ideas that everybody shares. Now, there are ideas and there are principles and, you know, just Google movement for black lives and you'll see a whole bunch of uh, really important suggestions. But when people think about issues like abolishing police, uh, defunding cops, you know, th that's a big tent. So lots of people have lots of different ideas. What it means to me is a kind of reform idea of justice reinvestment, which is to take some of the money that we spend uh, on the boys in blue and to devote that to stuff that will, you know, really help people in the communities where the boys in blue are, are disproportionate now. So, you know, in New York City, there's this amazing project. It was a few years ago called the Justice Mapping Project. I love it because it blends art and activism. And what these folks did was to, uh, on a map of Manhattan, to put in this particular color, the blocks were just on that one block. The government was spending a million dollars on police and prisons just to lock up just to control the people in that one block. And as you could well imagine, the blocks were in communities of color and not in wealthy neighborhoods or white neighborhoods. One million just on that one block. And so I think the idea behind defunding police is, is what if? What if rather than spending that million dollars on police and prison, in that block? What if we spent that on, on job training, on, on helping young mothers learn how to be the best moms, helping young dads learn how to be the best dads, and improving schools? One of my friends was saying that the um, consequence where he was of the riots is uprisings. I like that term better. One of the consequences of the uprisings is that because of the coronavirus, school lunches have been disrupted, and, but the disruption turned out to be that people just go to a central place to pick up the lunches since there's no more school. But now because of the uprising, uh, the, the people who were responsible for handing out the food, they didn't want to come. They were scared. And so now these kids, they don't have anything to eat. And again, if we're spending a million dollars on, on, on cops and prisons on that plot and, and, and their kids right now who who have who suffer from food insecurity who don't have enough food to eat I mean come on one of the other solutions you have in the book is the idea that police forces should be 50 percent female um, I'm why why was that one of the things that you thought would change the underlying situation evidence-based smarter crime I mean you know people have different theories about why, but the reality is that women officers are much less likely to use force, including deadly force, than male officers, and, and they're just as good at solving cases. And so, again, it's a lot clearer now than it was, uh, you know, a year or so, a couple years ago when I, I, I first wrote Choco. Um, that the situation is dire, that we need to do something right now. And so if we know that women are better police officers in terms of keeping people safe than men, well, that's quick fix sounds too kind of facile, but, but it, it's something that we can, can do. When I was writing about mass incarceration, um, in my first book called Let's Get Free, you know, kind of my own private kind of funny working title for the book uh, was I'm here to get my baby out of jail. And what I liked about that working title was that it expressed the kind of the immediacy of, of the problem. And, and so the idea of, of, of women being at least half of officers is kind of along those lines. Probably I understand a way more complicated than that. And it doesn't mean that there aren't women who are brutal. There certainly are. But just in terms of getting the police to stop killing 
us and stop beating us up so much and stop arresting us so much in situations in which white people wouldn't be arrested. Uh, having more women officers uh, gets us closer to that point. One of the things I've been wondering, and that I answer, I think, bridges to it, is should the institution we think of as a police just be there for a much smaller set of problems? I mean, this goes back to what you're saying about it sounds radical like a joke that maybe when there's a problem, you want to call on a grandma. But look, there are, there are times when you need somebody who is expert in the use of force to show up. But most of the time, that's not true. Oftentimes, you want somebody who's good at de-escalation or good at something else, peacemaking. Oftentimes, you need somebody who's good at mental health provision. And maybe we just need more centrally other institutions in American life with different cultures and aims that are able to respond to like basically 90% of infractions and problems. I mean, I know that certain communities have things like this, but there's nothing like what every kid learns that you can call 911 and get a police person. And maybe we just have put way too much under the ambit of this institution that is centrally around force where the symbol is a badge and a gun. And we just need to build institutions that can deal with this umbrella set of problems in a more flexible set of ways and are built around different cultures and different founding values and attract different kinds of people into them. Um, so you're not just, you know, not just defund the police, but build other institutions that sit alongside them. Just so you know, the people who are going to be standing and applauding when they hear what you just said are cops. That's what they say all the time. They say people expect us to do a whole lot more than what we're equipped to do and that we're, and what we're able to do. So they're the first person, they're the first people to say, hell yeah, go for it. You know, let, let's think about first responders in a much more literal way. People who are going to actually have the training the ability, the resources to deal with the problem. And often that's not, again, the woman with the gun and the badge and the power to arrest. I think that's a good place to come to a close. Let me ask you the question we always used to end the show, which is what are a couple books that have influenced you that you would recommend to the audience on these issues or on anything? I'll tell you that by first explaining kind of what I said at the beginning about how I could only watch that very traumatic video of Mr. Floyd's life being extinguished once and how um, as painful as the, the, the video is, the, the audio is almost as painful. We, we know now that, you know, one officer had Mr. Floyd by the neck, another by the back, another by the leg. Uh, a fourth was preventing folks who were trying to help Mr. Floyd from helping them. And as, as the crowd is watching this atrocity, uh, one bystander says to the cops, he's human, bro. And, and the, the, the tragedy is that to these police officers, Mr. Floyd was not human. And so the, the books that I think of are, are Toni Morrison novels. Um, my favorite is Song of Solomon. What Toni Morrison does is establish the humanity of Black people. And it's not a humanity in the context of a white gaze. It's blackity, black, black. It's loving. It's crazy. It's lyrical. It's stupid. It's genius. It's real. And when I read Toni Morrison, you know, I know those characters. Those are the people who raised me. You know, there's this this wonderful line in one of her books where uh, a, a woman who's gotten kind of bougie and grand um, and has read that uh, parents are supposed to play with kids, that helps kids develop. And this woman turns to her, her, her mom and says, mama, 
why didn't you ever play with us when we were kids? And the mother says, wasn't nobody playing in 19 and 22? God, I love that line. It, it, it reminds me of my, my people. So it's not so much for an escape that I, I go to fiction and that I go to Toni Morrison. Uh, I go to her because she keeps it real and she also restores my spirit. So is there a particular Toni Morrison book or two that you would tell people to start with if, they, if they're not familiar? Song of Solomon. It, it's brilliant. It, it's lyrical. Great story. Not too depressing. Fun and funny. So that, that's the first one. Again, other great ones. You know, Sula is also one of my favorites. But, you know, people, once you start, I think it, it, it's hard to, to, to put her down. You know, it's, 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 I wouldn't say it's some, all of it's an easy read. Um, it's not a difficult read. It's kind of a, a medium read, but it, it, it's brilliant. And, you know, it, it, it's, it's not an escape so much. It's a different, different time. Um, but it, it certainly reminds you of, of, of current events. Uh, but but it's it's also it's just it's just beautiful. So it it, it it's art, you know. It, it's it's beautiful. So uh, that's that's what I think of. So so Toni Morrison, she's the woman. Paul Butler, your book is called Choke Cold, which I highly recommend people read. Thank you very much. It's been a pleasure. Thank you to Paul Butler for being here. Thank you to Jackson Bierfeld for engineering, to Bert Pinkerton for producing, to Roger Karma for researching. The Ezra Klein Show is a Vox Media podcast production. This podcast was supported by Choiceology, an original podcast from Charles Schwab. Hosted by Katie Milkman, an award-winning behavioral scientist and author of the best-selling book, How to Change, Choiceology is a show about the psychology and economics behind our decisions. Hear true stories from Nobel laureates, authors, athletes, and more about why we do the things we do. Listen to Choiceology at schwab.com podcast or wherever you listen. 